you pray with me? Lord, we do praise you. Um, praise you, Father. Praise you, Son. Praise you, Spirit, three in one. And Lord, thank you again this morning for your grace in our lives, God. Thank you that um, we just sang that song, uh, that you, your name is power, that your name is um, it can conquer anything. And God, I thank you for that. Lord, remind us of that truth again this morning as we open your word. God, as we study, um, again, the stories of, of your word, and, um, and we look at the truths there, Lord, would you help us to apply it in a very personal way? God, we don't want to go through the motions this morning um, and, and not experience your presence stirring in our hearts. God, speak truth to each of us. Um, guard us from any uh, misconceptions or errors and, um, and direct our thinking this morning as we open your word and study from it. Lord, we love you and we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Kids, you are dismissed. You can go to your classes. Enjoy your time. Man, it look, it's going to empty out here. Look at all the kids going. Wow. We were talking about it the other day that if we, uh, if we need space, we could probably check kids in first thing and, and um, you know, look at, it, look at how it empties things out. But, man, uh, that's such a cool thing, and it's exciting to be at a place where, where there's that many kids headed to their classes. This morning... Um, I was getting ready to, to come here this morning and to teach out of 1 Samuel. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel and um, sort of titled this series, Looking for a King, and because that's really the story, is this longing, this anticipation of a coming king. And, uh, and so thank you again for joining us. Thank you for those who are joining online. appreciate you coming. And I was thinking about this story, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and this story about how the Philistines were building these, these strongholds, these places where they would sort of camp out and they would terrorize the children of Israel. And, and as I was getting ready this morning, that song um, was playing on my computer, um, I Speak Jesus. And all of a sudden I thought, that song preaches this sermon better than I can, and, uh, and I and I told my wife, I said, man, I wish we could sing it, but it's too late to get a hold of Amber and have her sing that song. And Amber, you hit it. So um, I, it, Elaine says, well, maybe the Holy Spirit will just lead Amber to sing it. So um, Amber, thanks for singing that song. It does. It, it, it hits that, this subject so well. First Samuel chapter 13 is we're sort of transitioning into Saul's king, uh, his reign as king. If you were here last Sunday, Billy talked about Samuel's farewell address, and he reminds the children of Israel that he hasn't really taken anything. He's served with integrity. He's led them with integrity. And, and he's asking them, have I, not, have I taken anything from you? And you sort of see that transition from Samuel talking to the people to Samuel then talking to God. And, and there's definitely a shift in the story that's happening here. And Saul needs to step into his role as king. And even though, as we looked at several weeks ago, even though God was saying, this is not a good move right now, but God went ahead and gave them a king, God expects Saul to lead well as that king. And when he puts him in position, he has expect expectations for him. And 
as we're going to see in the story, Saul fails to live up to those expectations. I titled this morning a time to do something. You know, there's times in your life where you, you tolerate something about so long. And then eventually you come to a place, you're like, i got to do something about it. We have a little shed in our, at our place where we store like the lawnmower and a bunch of different things. And about every so often, it gets so full and so cluttered that I reach a point, I reach a breaking point. And I'm like, it's time to do something. And usually what that looks like is I take everything out of that little shed and I put it out in my driveway and then some of the stuff goes back in there and some of it doesn't. Some of it gets thrown away, some of it gets taken somewhere else. The stuff that goes back in there gets reorganized and I'm always amazed at how much room is in that shed. And I am reaching about that point again. I haven't done that for about a year and a half, and I'm about that point where it's like it's time to do something. I need to clean it out, and I need to address it. I need to address the clutter, and I need to address some things that are in there. The reason I don't is because it's going to require something of me. It's going to take time and energy, and not only that, there's some things in there that my wife and I are not in agreement on whether they should be in there. And so not only is it going to take some time and energy, it's going to possibly create conflict. And it would just be easier to just leave it alone and, and, and allow the clutter to exist in that little shed. I went in there to get something yesterday, and I was tripping over stuff, and I thought, man, I have got to clean this shed out. But clearly it hasn't gotten bad enough to actually do something about it. I'm still just talking about it. Have you ever noticed that there's times in your life where there's things that are going on, there are attitudes or there's sins or there's stuff that you know you need to address, but you're also unwilling to go through the process because you also know it's going to require some battle. There's going to be a battle if I do it. I'm going to have to fight through some things. It's not going to go well. And where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is a story where those kinds of scenarios are being presented to Israel, where the Philistines are literally building camps in places that they shouldn't even be in, and they're terrorizing the Israelites. It's time to do something. Time to do something about it. Time to address it. And I want to do a little bit of an outline of 1 Samuel 13, and then we're going to pick up in kind of the heart of 1 Samuel 13 and, and read some of the verses together. Um, there, I put a map up here because I, there, there's a number of town names and regions that are going to be mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I wanted to give you some sense of idea of where we're talking about. Most of what's happening is going to be right in this area. Um, it's like you're going to hear names like um, like Gibeah and Geba and Mishmash and Gilgal, those are all right in that area. And I don't know if you like maps. I love maps. And so it helps me to know where those, uh, where those towns are at. When I was a kid, I could spend hours staring at atlases, like an atlas or a map, and imagining you know, what the towns look like. And imagine my, my joy when I discovered Google Earth. Like now I can go to Google Earth and I can actually zoom in. I'm like, I wonder what it's like to live in that house. And, um, and 
I, I just I like maps. So for me, it helps to get some frame of references to what's going on. These are real places, real people, and real towns. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 4 to 1, sort of, sort of set the stage where it says in verse 1, now this is actually a little bit of a difficult passage to translate for translators. It, if you read it in the ESV, it says Saul lived for one year and then became king. If you happen to read it in the NIV, it says uh, Saul was 30 years old and, and then reigned for 42 years. Um, translators have struggled with this, with this verse. If you read it very literally, it would literally say Saul was the son of a year. And don't know what to do with that. Not sure. Um, some people think that means that he had reigned for, that he had been a king for a year when this story happened. And I actually would lean that direction personally. Um, but it, but there's, there's reasons to think that it may be referring to something else. But let's just go with my translation, which is that he had been a king for a year, um, because that seems to make the most obvious sense. But it talks about how Saul was creating an army. Now, if you remember back in, this is chapter 13, if you remember back at the end of chapter 11, right after his inauguration, he had gone up to the northern part of uh, the nation of Israel. He had delivered some people from, uh, from the Ammonites, I believe it was. And it talks about he had an army of several hundred thousand. But now we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and Saul is amassing an army, and he ends up with 3,000. In fact, he sent home people instead of incorporating them into his army. He decided 3,000 was enough. He split his army in 2,000 and 1,000. He gave 1,000 soldiers to his son Jonathan, and he, he asked Jonathan to sort of command 1,000 soldiers. Saul kept 2,000. Jonathan goes to a place called Geba. If you see it on the map there, it's in the circle. And there was, at Geba, there was a Philistine stronghold. There was a place where there were Philistine soldiers who were camped out in, in a in sort of, like, like think of um, probably something along the lines of an early American stockade, if you can kind of picture that in your mind. Like a place where they would sort of amass a bunch of soldiers. And so there they were in Geba, but these soldiers were there to keep control over the, that region of Israelites. But they're enemies of the Israelites. And Jonathan decides, well, it's time to do something about this. And so he goes up to the garrison of Geba, and it says he conquered them. And he said, I'm packing. And wonderful thing to do, right? Let's address the stronghold. And then it says... In, in those first four verses that Saul hears about, it says he blew a trumpet in Israel, so there was probably like a series of trumpets following to make people listen, and, uh, and he says, let all the Hebrews hear, and the story was that Saul had defeated the Philistines at Geba. The text doesn't address it. I don't know why Saul didn't give credit to Jonathan. Maybe it's just simply, well, Jonathan was working under the authority of Saul. I, it doesn't really address it, but Saul definitely took the credit. And then it says that Israel became a stench to the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines did not look at Jonathan's actions at Geba and say, you know, we'll just leave. We'll just leave you alone. Because maybe you don't like us being here. And instead, the Philistines hated them because of what had happened. 
And it says the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. You find it in verse 5, where the Philistines amass an army of 36,000 troops and camp at Mishmash. I like that name, by the way. It just sounds good. I wish we lived in the town of Mishmash, not Kelowna, because it sounds cooler. Um, and you read how this army of 36,000 Philistines, it, ref it refers to them as a multitude like the sand of the sea. Like it, it acknowledges the fact that you just picture just soldiers everywhere. That's a huge army. And if you remember from a couple verses ago, the Israelite army was about 3,000. And it talks about what the Israelites, what the Hebrews did as they began to see this massive army coming. It says they hid in caves, they hid in rocks. It says some of them started to cross the ford. Um, again, kind of that area right there, the ford at Gilgal. So they're getting out. Of, they're just getting out of there. They're going to head out. Um, they don't want to be. Any, they don't want to have any part of fighting an army of thirty-six thousand Philistines. They have no interest in it, and so they're getting out of Dodge, and um, and that's the scenario that you find yourself. And then you come to verse eight, and there's this incredible story, and we're going to read this story in in a moment. But there's a story where Saul disobeys God, and God rejects him. And I'm going to unpack that a little more. Um, there's about seven and a half verses there that tell the story. And then we find the Hebrew army is surrounded by the Philistines. It talks about how the Philistine army of 36,000 broke them up into three different uh, groups and sort of sent them out, and they are going to keep the Israelites under a lid. And the last thing it says in chapter 13 is that the Hebrew army is de-weaponized. The Philistines... Do not allow them to have any swords or any weapons. They are not even allowed to have a grindstone to make swords and weapons. The Philistines kept the grindstone, and the, the Israelites had to pay them to sharpen their agricultural tools. So the Philistines wanted to know who has weapons and who doesn't. It says there were two swords in the entire Israelite army, and Saul had one and Jonathan had one. There is no way you're going to win a battle with 3,000, which, by the way, after everybody had run, that army was about 600. So now you've got an army about 600 up against 36,000 and two swords and no weapons. And they ran for a reason. If you look at those odds, they look absolutely impossible. And initially I was going to incorporate chapter the first part of chapter 14 in this morning's message because it kind of goes, it kind of carries the story. But I wanted to just stop and address some things here. So we'll get there next Sunday. And we're going to kind of finish some of that story next Sunday. But I want to talk about something that's going on in chapter 13 before we rush on to chapter 14. And the heart of this chapter is that story from about verse 8 to verse 15. And I want to read that story. It says, and you can follow along, if you have your Bibles, you can, um, you can follow along your Bibles. I want to pick it up in verse 8. He, and that's referring to Saul, waited seven days. So you know the scenario, right? You're, they're waiting to go up to battle against the Philistines. 
It says, he waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering, and Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of verse 15 would simply say, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. You understand what's happening here? Samuel had told Saul, wait seven days. Before you go to battle, wait seven days. Because you don't go to battle with 600 versus 36,000 and two swords unless you know the Lord is on your side. You're going to get slaughtered, right? So Saul kind of understands that as a general principle. He sort of gets it. Like, no one wants to go up against those insurmountable odds with their own army and their own strength. Saul really does, I believe, want God to fight this battle for him. But what Samuel has told him is, before you go up, he says, wait, seven days, and in seven days, he says, I will come and I'll offer the sacrifices. And so you picture Saul and these people, and they're sitting there, and word is coming in, and they, they have a sense of how large this army is that they're up against. And there's this discussion. I, I can just imagine these two guys you know, sitting there in the camp, and they're talking about, did, did someone say there's 36,000 of those troops? The guy's like, yeah, that's, that's what I heard. And how many swords do we have to get? We got two. We're, we're done. There's no way. I'm going to go talk to Saul. Maybe we need to put a cry out through Jerusalem, or through Israel, like get more people. We got to do something. And Saul's saying, well, Samuel's coming. He's a man of God. And when God's on the move, the enemy's going to be defeated, I, I hope, I think. We're waiting on Samuel. Said he'd be here in seven days. And day six rolls around, and everybody's getting restless. They're like, well, in an issue this important, surely God would be early. Have you ever noticed God's not early? He's always on time, but he's never early, and he's actually never late. Day seven rolls around, and it's time for the morning sacrifice, and Samuel's still not there. And now it's getting time for the evening sacrifice, and Samuel's still not there. And Saul says, seven days. It's been seven days. 
Time for the evening sacrifice. I don't think I don't think Samuel's coming. I don't think that God will keep his word. I'll take this in my own hands and I'll offer my own sacrifice. And it talks about there was a burn offering and a peace offering. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that, but he had offered one and not the other yet. So he's literally in the middle of it, and Samuel walks up. And Samuel says, what are you doing? What have you done? And Saul makes all of his excuses, right? And Samuel says, and I, I find this fascinating, because Samuel says that God could have established a kingdom with you forever. He could have, but he's not going to. Why? Because of Saul's disobedience. Um, Verse 13, it says, You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. The what if. The what could have been. But it didn't happen because of Saul's disobedience. And it's kind of sobering, isn't it? This thing of running ahead of God. And I wonder how many things I've missed in my life, how many things we've missed, because of being unwilling to let God do it in His timing and in His way. Like, man, we get impatient. I've been praying about this for weeks. I don't see anything happen. I'm just going to do something. I'm just going to do something. And this is in the context of Jonathan sort of saying, I don't think those enemy Philistines should be camped at Geba terrorizing us. I'm going to do something. And he does something and God blesses it. But now here's Saul, who's also saying, I'm going to do something, and God rejects him for it. So simply doing something is not always the right action. It's important that whatever we do is the right thing and that it's on God's timing. But there's another issue going on here, and I want to kind of draw the connection for us because it's easy to to read these stories of the Old Testament and to not make practical application to our lives today. And when we read things like Philistines and Ammonites and Amorites and Hittites and all of those things, We can picture these, you know, vague armies and so forth, but we don't know what it has to do with us today. We're not sure how those people apply to anything today. Especially in light of the fact that when you turn to the New Testament and after the the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, and you move into this new way that is called, eventually called Christians and called the church, you find them saying things like, well, our battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians chapter 6. We're not fighting nations and people like Philistines and Ammonites and things like that. It says, well, we are in a battle. We are in a battle. But we are in a battle against evil and evil forces there are demonic forces, and you might be like, oh my goodness, he, says it, he said it. He said there's going to be, that there's actually demons. Yes, there are. And we battle against an enemy called the devil. We battle against our flesh and its desires, and we battle against the world, which is a culture around us that 
does not honor God. And the battle is on those three fronts. The devil, our flesh, and the world. And when we go to the Old Testament and we read about the enemies of God and the strongholds and the battles, what we're supposed to be able to do is see principles outlined in those stories that actually apply to the principles in our battle. And you do not find God addressing the evil in the stories of the Old Testament that are not consistent with the way that God addresses evil in our day through the gospel and through the power of Jesus Christ. And that's why, by the way, it's a bigger deal than we realize that Saul is messing up this picture of how God will address the enemies of his children throughout human history. Saul messes it up when he bypasses God's timing and God's way. And he does so by his intent and not after God's heart. Saul, if God had honored Saul's sacrifice, he would have essentially been communicating for history that I will defeat enemies through the power of human strength. And he will not communicate that. He had no intentions of communicating that. He doesn't want us in 2022 coming across a principle laid out in Scripture that says that if I try really hard, I can defeat all of my enemies. And I can do it without Christ's help. And so he addresses what Saul does as an act of disobedience because Saul is really messing up the picture by his act of disobedience. And while you may think, and I may think, that, well, God's really dealing harshly with Saul, he's not. He's dealing appropriately with Saul when you realize that there is a greater story, that this story is part of a much bigger story that is happening, and that he wants to deliver his people with a man after God's own heart, after his own heart. And I want to make the connection for you this morning. I really want us to make the connection between the strongholds that we read about in the Philistines, the enemies of God, and the strongholds that exist in our day. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What's Paul saying? He's saying, even to people of God, even to people who are Christians, you're saved, your, your sins are forgiven. But he says it's possible that even in that context that there would be places in our lives that the enemy actually has some power that there are strongholds that exist. And Paul's writing to a church, by the way. He's not writing to unchurched people. And he's writing to a church, and he's saying, there are strongholds in your life. The enemy that you face is not a physical enemy. It's not another nation. He's like, this enemy is a spiritual enemy, and he builds up strongholds. And he's like, we want to tear them down. And we want to bring them down and destroy those strongholds. Strongholds, And he he addresses, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion 
raised against the knowledge of God. Strongholds are those things, by the way, that their core message is, God is not who He says He is, and neither are you. You're not who He says you are either. God isn't who He says He is, and neither are you. Those lies that come into our lives that begin to shape the trajectory of our lives, those become strongholds. They are areas where the enemy is allowed to work and to defeat areas of our lives. Things like crippling anxiety and fear, greed, lust, idolatry, pride, all of those, and you could add to that list, all of those are areas of strongholds that the enemy, if he is allowed to, will set up a camp and he will screw up our lives in the process. Because he'll take a stronghold of pride and he'll mess up our relationships with it. Times when we know good and well, we ought to go and say, I'm sorry and I apologize, but our pride's just too big. And we're like, I can't do that. Just too proud. And I'm not willing to address the stronghold. Or the, or the crippling anxiety, that worry about, well, what will people think of me? That idol of people's opinion. Man, that's a huge stronghold. It has been for me. I've had to choose to ask God, like, help me tear this stronghold down. People's opinion matters too much. And the enemy will use that idol of approval to mess up my life. I'll make decisions based on the approval of people, not on what God asks of me, and not obedient to, the, to who Christ is. Do you understand where we're going with this? There are strongholds that can exist and do exist, and there is a time when it is time to do something about it. And that time's now. There is a time when it is time to do something about it. To acknowledge the fact that there are areas of our lives that are not the way they ought to be. And we just keep tolerating it. We'll trip over it. We'll let the clutter sit there. We can see the results of it. You can see how it's messing up relationships around us. Tension in marriages. Too proud to say I'm sorry. Bad decisions too addicted to this, too addicted to people's approval, I'm addicted to an experience. The list could go on and on and on. And if I want you to get anything this morning, I want you to know that you don't have to live with those kinds of strongholds in your life. Paul is writing this from a position of confidence and belief that strongholds can be torn down and destroyed. And they can be taken and brought into obedience to the mind of Christ. And sometimes it is literally insisting that our thoughts do not run freely. Have you noticed if you let your thoughts run freely, they tend to take you to places you should not go? You can have entire arguments with somebody, and you win every one of those arguments, and it's all going on in your head. And none of it is in the obedience of Christ. You can fantasize about all kinds of sin, lust, greed. You can fantasize about what you would do if you could just get a hold of more money. You could be with that person. 
And you let that go and go and go in your mind. And then you wonder why you make bad decisions. Because that becomes a stronghold. It's, not, it's, it's something that is allowed to exist in your thinking that is not in the obedience of Christ. And it doesn't honor him. You're like, oh, well, yeah, but you know, it's just kind of the way it is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a time to stand up and do something about it. It takes courage to address strongholds. It takes absolute courage to address the areas of our lives and you know they're not the way they should be. And if I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times or maybe thousands, I've heard myself say it. Well, I know I should, fill in the blank, and the next word out of our mouth is, but. I know I should, I know I should be in the Word more, but, man, I'm so busy. I know I ought to go talk to this person. I know I need to address this in my life, but, you know, I'm hoping that at some point I'll have more time. I'm just exhausted. Like, we're so good at excuse-making, aren't we? It takes immense amount of courage to address the strongholds. If you were paying attention in this story, the problem actually got worse when Jonathan goes to address the stronghold, doesn't it? If you were an Israelite, wouldn't you look at Jonathan and say, why didn't you just leave the Philistines alone at Geba? Leave them alone. Yes, there's a stronghold. Yes, they won't let us have any weapons. Yes, they're terrorizing us. Yes, they're taking everything that's precious to us away from us. They're, they're terror. Yes, all of those are true. But leave them alone because it could get worse. It did get worse before it got better. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that we don't engage in addressing the issues of our lives because we're just lazy and fearful. And we're so afraid of the, the process. We don't address something in, in, a, in a family member. We're like, well, but it's going to get worse before... Yes, it will get worse before it gets better. Have you ever had a kid who developed a bad habit? Like, please tell me that that didn't just happen in our house. Because it happens with kids. Young parents, if your kids are really little, your time's coming. Kids develop some bad habits sometimes. And, you, and, and sometimes we're lazy as parents. We just kind of let it go and let it go and let it go and let it go. I just don't, the, the fight's not worth it. I'm not sure if the fight's worth it. Because what do you know? You know that at the point that you begin to address it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It will. Like they're, they're going to fight you on it. You're going to be accused of being everything but a good parent. And you're not sure if you're strong enough for it. But that's the way we are with the issues of our life. We don't, we don't find in ourselves the courage to address it. This is why it's so important for Saul to wait on Samuel. This is why it's so important for us to wait on God. Because that's where we find the courage is in the presence of God. It could change the balance of power if we would obey. Can you imagine how the story would look different if Saul had just obeyed? Obedience could change the balance of power. 
Because at this point, the balance of power is all on the Philistines. It's all on the enemies of God. But Saul's obedience could have shifted the balance of power to be all on the Israelite side because of God's fighting for them. Obedience can change the balance of power. That thing where you say, I know I should, but stop saying but and making excuses because that's why the balance of power doesn't shift and you don't find yourself. Excuses don't cancel disobedience. There is a time to do something. There's a time to stand up and say, I will not grow old this way. I'm not going to keep circling the same bush. I'm not going to keep dealing with the same sins and the same hang-ups and the same addictions and the same anxieties. I'm not going to grow old like this. I'm not going to keep doing this. That's a stronghold. And I believe that in the name of Jesus and with His power, this stronghold could be torn down. But I keep making excuses. Because I don't want to go through the process. I don't want to address it. It's going to mean saying no to myself a lot. I hate saying no to myself. It's a pain to say no to myself. So I don't want to do it. And we just allow that to happen and to sit there week after week and turns into year after year and it becomes the, the, part, the trajectory of our lives. But, but listen, a king after God's heart could defeat the enemy, couldn't he? Isn't that what Samuel says to Saul? He says, God wants a king after his own heart and he's going to find him. And he's, of course, referring to David. We're going to find that in a few chapters. But not only is he referring to David, he's referring to Jesus. Because David was a type of Jesus. David's a picture of Jesus. The king after God's own heart. What did Jesus say? He says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. And Jesus, what he did, everything he did was in perfect harmony with his Father. And he only acted in complete and total obedience to what his father wanted. And in the process of being obedient and being our king, it says that he defeats the enemies. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. That means he, he, it was completed. The sitting down is a symbol of saying it's finished, it's done, it's completed. You can't add to the sacrifice of Christ. You can't somehow add anything to what he already did. It is finished. It's complete. And it says that when Christ had offered a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Quoting, by the way, out of Psalm 110, which it quotes several times through the New Testament, saying that where it talks about that the enemies will be made a footstool. Do you remember what God told Eve Back in the garden, right after the sin had been committed, he says, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Bam! Foot on his head. And that's what he's referring to in Hebrews 10. He says, when Christ had offered the sacrifice for sins, he makes his enemies a footstool, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us. He has perfected for all time, eternity, future, what's happening right now. Those who are being sanctified, you and I, who are being changed day by day by day. This, this word sanctification, this word sanctified just literally means that God is changing us day by day and that he is turning us into 
people who, were, who look more like Jesus than we did yesterday. That's what the process of sanctification is. He's cleaning up the areas of our lives. He's tearing down the strongholds of our lives. He's taking care of that stuff. People who are saved, they're going to heaven, but not walking in the kind of freedom God intended for them to walk in. He's, that's what he's addressing. And he's saying, if you have any question about whether or not you have to drag around the same sins you've been dragging around for all your life or for so many years or those strongholds, he says, let me settle this question. You do not need to live like this for the rest of your life. You can walk in freedom. Why? Not because Christ is going to pay for it, but because he has already paid for it. Because he has already purchased our freedom from sin. Because it has already been done. He's seated. It's done. It's a place of position and power and authority where he is seated at the right hand of God because he has already accomplished it for us. Our responsibility is to say, I will move in faith and obedience and I'm going to obey God. I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to repent of whatever is going on, that stronghold that exists in my life, and I'm going to see the balance of power shift. I believe with all my heart, because I've experienced it so many times in my own life, that when I trust simply the power of Jesus Christ, yes, there is battle, but there is absolutely victory. There is victory. I could sit here and tell stories, my own story and in some of your stories, of things, areas in my own life. I just knew they weren't the way God wanted them to be. I just referred to one of them a little bit ago. Just that absolute idol of approval from people. Like, I just need people to love me. Which, by the way, is not an unusual sin for pastors. Um, like this, this idol of self-approval, of, of people's approval. And uh, man alive, I mean, that, the enemy just used that. Used it in so many devious ways. And, and as I... As, God just gently begins to begin to show me that stuff. I'm like, well, God, I don't know how to change that. Like, this is just the way I'm wired. Like, I know I shouldn't, but, right? And, and God just in his gracious, gentle kindness just keeps bugging. <laughs> you say, do you really want to live this way? You really want that stronghold? You want to keep it there? Because... The right king could set you free, because he already has. He already has. You want to walk in it? You want to be free? Because you can. For me, it looked like a process, like changing the way I think. Bringing my thoughts into captivity to the obedience of what God speaks in his word. Things like Paul saying, if I become an approve, a, a, a seeker of men's approval, then I can't be approved by God. Like that verse kind of grabbed me by the shirt collar. And it's like, look at it. <laughs> look at this. Right? That happens. God in his kindness counsels us by his Holy Spirit. And he, he counsels our hearts. He exposes those strongholds. And he gives us the courage and the strength to address them. And to say, I will not grow old this way, and I don't think I have the strength to address them and to tear them down. So I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to bring my thoughts into obedience to Him. I'm going to trust that what He says, He means. 
and I'm going to believe it. I'm going to take him at his word. It's a sermon in a sentence. There we go. Strongholds are destroyed when the right king is leading the battle. Strongholds are destroyed when the right king is leading the battle. Where Christ is Lord of our lives, there will be freedom. But if there are areas of your life that you will not let him have lordship, and you will not let him have control, you're not experiencing freedom there. If he's not in control of your finances, then you're not free financially. If he's not in control of your sexuality, then you're not in freedom with your sexuality. If he's not in control of your relationships, then you're not in freedom in your relationships. Where Christ is king, strongholds get torn down. It's that submission to his lordship that brings down those areas of strongholds in our lives. Man, it's good to know that the Philistines don't end, win in the end. In fact, next week, we're going to look at a really cool sort of completion to this little story. Like there's a, there's a sequel to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I have some deeper study questions. You can write them down or snap a picture of them. But while you're doing that, I just want to challenge you to be open to the Holy Spirit showing you. Like, it's okay to say, Lord, would you show me any strongholds in my life? And I'm not going to fight you on it. I promise I won't. Would you counsel me? Maybe you need to sit down with a counselor. There's nothing wrong with that. God can use counselors. God has used counselors. He's used books. He's used scripture. He's used sermons. He's used a lot of things in my life to counsel me by, this, by his spirit and to expose strongholds, and to give me the courage to address them. And this may be a lifelong thing for me. I suspect it will be. It probably is for all of us. There's a lifelong process of sanctification, but I can tell you with absolute confidence this morning that he is a God who can tear down the strongholds. He can tear down that area that, is, that you're experiencing defeat in right now. He can do it. Will it be a battle? It could be. You know, when, when they found out where Osama bin Laden was at back in 2011, where was he? he was in a stronghold, wasn't he? Sitting there terrorizing the Western world out of his stronghold. And we could have said, you know, it's going to be a battle to go in after him. People could get hurt. We could lose equipment, and they did lose equipment. People could, it might fail. Because it could have failed. They, just, they didn't know they had Jesus on their side, so they could have experienced failure. But it was worth it to end a reign of terror. It was worth it to stop what was happening. It was worth invading a stronghold. And aren't you glad that they didn't just go find a bunch of average guys off the street and say, well, let's go do it. No, they find, they go after the highly trained, disciplined warriors who are good at breaking strongholds. Because it's still a principle that the king after God's own heart can tear down the strongholds. The one who walked in obedience to the heart of God. Amber, if you guys want to go and come on up, um, I need to bring us to a close. But it really, it really becomes 
important and imperative for you and I that we address those areas. Maybe you're here this morning and you know it's time to do something. Listen, don't be a saw. Don't take action without the leading of God. Sit with God. Get in His Word. Pray. Worship. And let the work of God inside drive the process of tearing. You're going to need His strength. There are some strongholds that do not come down easily. There are things that you and I battle that we may battle in some level a sense of temptation all of our lives. But again, I can tell you that it is worth fighting through. It is worth tearing down those strongholds. There is no reason for the enemy to build a stronghold in our life and to leave it alone. Go after it and do something. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you so much for each person here. Lord, um, this is just a it's sort of a weighty word in one sense, and in other words, it's a, in other sense, it's so full of hope. God, I thank you that none of us have to live with areas of, of bondage or, um, or strongholds in our lives, or that we can, we can draw close to you. You say in your word multiple times that if we'll draw close to you, that you'll draw close to us. God, we don't want to fight the enemy. We don't want to fight sin or addiction or any of those things. We don't want to fight them in our own strength. We want your power at work in our lives. Lord, if we, if we run out ahead of you, stop us, please. If we get too caught up with our own ideas and our own strength, slow us down, stop us. Remind us of your power. And then, Lord, I pray for each person here. God, that that you would give each, each of us courage to address the strongholds of our lives. Give us courage, Lord. Courage to say it's time to do something. I'm going to go defeat it. To stop making excuses for disobedience. Saul made all kinds of excuses. Lord, we don't want to make excuses. We want to just obey with simple faith. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you to do in us what we could never do for ourselves because of your power at work in us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.